Oh, hello. Is anybody? <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Sheila. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm an addict. Um, this is the part, I suppose, where I'm supposed to say about which more later. If at any time I'm talking too quickly or too quietly, fat chance, say a few of my patients and friends in the audience, let me know, and I'll sit down. It'll probably be time for that anyway. Um, I have... Uh, I'm just trying to talk really slow. I, I guess what I would like to do today is uh, qualify as briefly as possible. Since everyone here has gone through their own type of agony, I'll try and stick to the types that I've had that might be different from the ones that I've heard so far, only to let those of you who have agony like mine know that there's somebody else out there that may or may not have gotten better over that agony. Um, I have had the privilege of associating with this group since 1986, San Diego, when I came to my first IDAA meeting. I think I explained to you it was uh, a command performance. My addictionologist commanded, and I performed, and I said, I don't have the money to do this. And he said, you don't have the money to not do this. You better go. He said, do you have any credit? And I said, I don't know, but I've got credit cards. He said, that's good enough. So I uh, agreed to do that in January and uh, went actually with a group of about 25 newcomers from the same treatment center at the time in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I currently practice addiction medicine there. And uh, it's been a very interesting journey. This, the topic I was given was a spiritual journey, so I guess part of my talk is going to be how I got to where I am, which is an interesting place, uh, spiritually, and how I started and how I felt when I first got here and when I went to my second, third, or whatever treatment it was, depending on how you look at treatment. Um, I grew up in a little town in Wisconsin, population 2,500, south of Madison, which was full of people who were either in retirement from farming or teaching at the university or one of the small plants and businesses or manufacturing outfits in the area. It's really dairy country and a very short distance from truck farming country and cattle raising country and all kinds of stuff. And it was a very kind of idyllic upbringing. My parents were great. Uh, they were loving unconditionally. I never had any problem understanding that they loved me no matter what I did. Uh, but However, even when I was a kid, I didn't. I spent lots of my early years comparing myself to other people. And I think that most of the problems I had with that uh, feeling different or outside the mainstream were because I was different and outside the mainstream. You know, the population of my high school uh, class was about 50 people, 54, and uh, the girls outnumbered the boys. You know, it's one of these great things. And if you were a smart girl, and there were a lot of smart girls in the class, it was better to lie quietly 
in wait and not demonstrate your smartness, or if you had some smartness, intelligence, and you tested well and did well in school, it would be a good idea to have some type of compensatory development in your personality. And since I had no bust, I decided that I would exploit my sense of humor, which I did. I mean, I wrote funny skits and all that jazz. I was a cheerleader and a rabble rouser and I got the part of the brat in the school play and all that. Um, I did not drink in high school, nor did I drink much in college. Uh, and most of that life was pretty quiet, no more turbulent than anything else. The first uh, serious depression I had was at that point prior to my really starting drinking. And uh, even though I drank some, a few drinks at a time when I socialized, I really didn't get drunk much. Uh, when I was a senior, I had a, an accident. I fell down a flight of stairs at 8 o'clock in the morning. No smart remarks, guys. I wasn't hungover. It was a weekday. I was on my way to class. And I ended up kind of hurting my back a little bit, but I bounced back after a couple of days. And three or four weeks later, I developed a pain in my leg, which I didn't think much about. After about six weeks, I went to the uh, doctor at the student health program, and he didn't think much about it either. But as I went further, my pain persisted. I got to medical school in Chicago in 1964. And at that point, uh, things began to get progressive. I had progressively more pain as I was going through the first year of medical school and encountered some interesting problems with doctors. Uh, one of the problems was that one of the orthopedic surgeons looked at me and looked at my x-rays and said, I think you have a disc, but you're much too young to have a disc. And besides, you're short or something. I don't know. And since I was a woman... He had a brilliant idea, why don't you go see our friendly local psychiatrist? So I did that. I didn't have anything against psychiatrists. I had a relative, a dear uncle, who was a psychiatrist with Tourette syndrome, if you can believe that. <laughs> yeah, he had some problems getting past boards because, of course, they hadn't been described yet. Um, so I had no prejudice against psychiatrists who went to the psychiatrist who said, well, you aren't crazy. We'll put the yet in the program right there, guys, just yet. And he passed me off to a neurologist, and the neurologist took one look at me. He said, this must be arthritic, since you're a woman physician to be, okay, and a little cracky, I suspect. Number one, let's try you on an anti-inflammatory drug, and his choice of drugs was aspirin. So he put me on three aspirin every two hours around the clock. Okay, and he left on a trip <laughs> over the weekend. So I started feeling progressively worse and starting to just, I did, I was sweaty and I, you know, I was a, a baby in medicine and after a couple of days I was really getting feeling bad and I was sitting in histology lecture one day with the sweat dripping down thinking I was going through, of course, early menopause. What else? I mean, that made sense and feeling mildly crazy. And all of a sudden, while well, there's a slide of some internal organ on the screen, I put my fingers in my ears, and I could hear the ringing of all those bells they used to tell me about. And I thought, wow, maybe I'm not crazy after all. 
this may not be menopause. Let's take action. So I tried to call the doctor, couldn't reach him. So on my very own, I stopped the aspirin. A triumph for me because I was a very compliant person, believe it or not. And actually got mad at the doctor, um, which was a very strange thing for me to do then or thereafter. Subsequently, things went on in a similar fashion. I would develop problems with my back. I would end up with either a surgeon, a neurosurgeon, or someone. And they would treat me as though I were crocky and or do something damaging and then not respond when I was having pain. And about six months after this episode, with a salicylate toxicity, I went uh, home for the summer break and had my first back surgery, had a laminectomy by a neurosurgeon and had a very good result. And went back to school. My surgeries in July, I went back to school in September, late August, and things were fine until about December when I developed a recurrence of pain and was then sent to the friendly local orthopedic surgeon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The second operation was done about March of my sophomore year of medical school and uh, was a totally different process. I ended up having surgery and a resultant serious scar tissue development, uh, a proliferative adhesive arachnoiditis, and I had persistent pain postoperatively, blah, 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 blah. So began my addiction. I was treated initially with nothing for pain postoperatively, and subsequently I was placed on the least intrusive pain medications, although uh, they did start with codeine and escalated to Percocet. They told me I would never get any better. Always a useful thing to tell a medical student and that I should drop out of medical school and think of being on disability for the rest of my life. Didn't seem like a good idea to me, and in a moment of rage, postoperatively from laminectomy too, I said, look, if you can't fix me, sign me out, because I'm going back to school. So they tried to resist that, and of course I was, a, as my friends from Wisconsin know, the traditional pain in the butt, and I just was so angry and outraged. And they said, you have to learn to live with this pain. And I said, well, show me how. And they couldn't. So I said, look, if I'm going to have chronic pain, I'm going to be a doctor with chronic pain. Let me out here. So I went back to school. And that was pretty much my attitude toward the whole thing. Uh, within three to six months, I was using opiates pretty consistently, uh, although maybe not daily. And I don't really remember the course of it. I do remember when I was a junior medical student, uh, going through the some for the patient, some for me routine that many of you may have been through. One of my favorite rotations was uh, intensive care where they would tape morphine sulfate to the table for each patient, and I would give them four milligrams and take the rest home with me because it was really a pity to waste that. Fortunately, they didn't have uh, patient-controlled analgesia at that time or my patients would have never seen their baggies morphine, it would have gone home with me. Uh, I made it through medical school and internship using opiates and subsequently some other drugs for my nervousness and muscle spasm and that kind of stuff, um, all prescribed by a doctor. And at that point, I was not the doctor. That came later. And subsequently moved on to writing my own prescriptions, et cetera, et cetera. It had a great impact on me in many, many ways. I 
really found that the only way I could navigate through this was to use drugs to suppress the pain. And at that point, I didn't understand that it really wasn't the pain that was the problem. Uh, my drinking was moderate at that point, but who needed to drink was what I was using. And after a time, my drinking began to escalate. Uh, as time went on with various and sundry problems, I had three more procedures, two, one of which was to repair the large mass of scar tissue that was visible on myelography, and then one for multiple level rhizotomy. And I can't remember, I think the next one, the, wait a minute, the fourth one was another disc, which I herniated two hours post-op uh, from operation number three, uh, which left me with difficulty walking in a quad, which was in trouble. Um, so I was somewhat impaired. Nonetheless, I decided that I would go back to school. I was going to finish, and I did that and probably participated in the most dysfunctional residency ever known to modern man. I can remember being at the podium trying to give a talk about uh, triglycerides and blood clotting and getting lost in minutiae. And I can remember uh, sweating, and I was probably to some degree in withdrawal much of the time. My brother, who was by then a medical resident, was in the audience watching this, and I really felt ashamed of my performance, but I wasn't smart enough or well enough, actually not smart enough, but well enough, to link that to my drug and alcohol use. By this time, I was using alcohol for bedtime, and these drug uses and alcohol use progressed as time went on. Uh, I did not complete my residency, having made every single mistake you can possibly make, if you're a medical resident, including sleeping with a department head. Also an alcoholic who subsequently died of a brain tumor about three or four years later, my discrimination capability was somehow diminished. I suspect it was some of those funny molecules floating around in my head, and my choice-making wasn't really good. So I think I smarted off once too many in outrage at that specific guy and ended up being discharged from my residency after about 33 months of post-grad training, um, only to proceed to an emergency room post in which I used heavily and wrote my own prescriptions. And the rest of my history is really pretty standard alcoholism addiction. Uh, I was seen by a psychiatrist along the way after having had a withdrawal seizure from Doradon, and he said, well, you dummy, you should know that biodegrades like a barbiturate and you have seizures when you stop the drug. I didn't know that, you know. I moved to Indiana to practice, having been recruited by a woman who was in a psychiatric ward with me for a curious tremor and funny nerve pain in her feet. Her husband was the... Chief Head Hancho, president of Valparaiso University, and I started as in the student health department with a guy who drank earlier in the day and more than I did. He subsequently got sick, and I had the whole load, and there are all kinds of stories. But it was the beginning of the great adventures. We were now into the 70s. We'd been through Watergate, and I don't know if you guys remember it, but the ones that are my age do, men and women, this was when you did lots of 
promiscuous sex. I mean, this was the age of what I would call, a, at one point called my post-divorce bed-hopping phase, which was preceded only by a pre-divorce bed-hopping phase. <laughs> As a matter of fact, at that point, having sex with someone was probably slightly more prevalent than shaking hands. Hi, have a drink, my place or your place, you know, and it was perfectly acceptable, or so I thought. There's only one thing that came to mind then, and that was that it was very strange how all my friends seemed to have all these problems. Most of them were like passing out in my living room, or not being able to drive their cars places because their licenses had been revoked, and I can remember clearly looking around this massive drunken humanity on my living room floor, thinking, aren't they lucky to have someone like me? to help them. Okay, just like I do now, guys. <laughs> this is your friendly local addictionologist. I, but I went through a messy marriage with a very messy divorce to a nasty man who beat me up and stole my money and slept with several ladies in our marriage bed, which I had paid for, on the rent that I provided. And subsequently, for some strange reason, my drinking increased. I can't imagine why. And when I would get drugs for pain, which I had quite often, I would end up using them all up very quickly. I did not, that was not the apex of my drug use, but it certainly was for my drinking, and there are all kinds of reasons behind it. Uh, in 1979, after I had been divorced four years, I attempted suicide, and being a good addict, you know, you want to really do the job, so I got a friend of mine who was formerly a pharmaceutical representative to find me some Nembutal, one of our classy barbiturates that they used to euthanize rats and stuff, and he came up with about three grams of Nembutal. I took that, I think 50 tablets of Enderol, 40 milligrams, something like 100 Capsules of imipramine, 150 milligrams. Compazine, clonidine, Tylenol, codeine, and Valium. Now, since that didn't seem to be effective right away, you know, being an impatient person, wanting to meet my maker rapidly, or at least end my existence, um... I followed that with, I think it was two-thirds of a fifth of vodka. And subsequently in the emergency, hi, I'm, I am here, you know. It's kind of shocking, isn't it? At the time, I weighed about 50 pounds less than I do. And I remember looking up at the lady in the ER and saying to her, as she wanted me to drink the Ipecac, it would be kinder to use a nasal gastric tube. And she said, shut up and drink it. So I did. Um, I think, who remembers? I woke up in ICU. I spent, I think, about a week and a half there and came out quite paranoid. And on one clever day, my internist came next, he came by my bedside and he said, I wanted to talk to you because you have a problem. And I said, you know my ex-husband. <laughs> he, of course, did know my ex-husband a little bit, and he said, no, I'm here to talk to you because you remind me of your fa my father. And my father has an alcohol problem, and we have to get you some help. And I said, what if I won't go? He said, then I will make sure you never practice medicine in the state of Indiana again. 
And my options at that time were the state hospital or a place in Georgia, not Ridgeway. Okay, they hadn't heard of it at that point. So 79 was my first treatment, and during that treatment I had a catastrophic GI bleed that was not recognized for five days. And the story of misadventure with doctors goes on and on and on. Finally, after staying clean for a couple of years, several geographic relocations, going back to drugs and alcohol, I ended up being intervened on again for the third time or whatever uh, by people from the State of Wisconsin Impaired Physicians Committee. But then I was in Wisconsin in my own private practice, family practice, and kind of doing sort of okay, except for my addiction. And they uh, decided to offer me an evaluation. Well, being a clever person, and we all know more about these drug things than these guys who intervene on us, I stopped all my drugs. Actually, I ran out on a Tuesday. I was supposed to go to treatment on Sunday for an evaluation. I did not make it till Sunday, and I was determined not to go there. And finally, I couldn't go there. I had seizures and hallucinations and was admitted to St. Mary's Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, and placed in four-way, five-way, actually five-point restraints for about another week until I cleared sufficiently. And when I woke up with Bruce Springsteen on the television, uh, I said, well, you've watched me now. Can I go home? I'm supposed to go for observation and evaluation. You've evaluated me. And they decided no. They thought that I should go off to this place in Milwaukee for further evaluation, which I did. That treatment uh, turned out somewhat better. It was a painful treatment for me emotionally, but physically as well, because I'd gone from taking three, maybe 30 to 40 grains of codeine and maybe uh, 20 to 30 tablets of Valium or an equivalent per day to nothing in five days. Uh, the aftermath of that was that feelings were not something that I knew much about. I came from a very loving, warm, expressive, funny family, and over the years I had turned into the equivalent of someone who was there in body alone. I would be interactive enough to complain, but not enough to laugh. Or, as my nurse later told me, that I laughed. It just wasn't always very appropriate. So, I mean, you know. So I went through the program there, which was prolonged, and they allowed me time to heal. They said, well, you know, you're going to be okay. Just do what we tell you, which I, of course, resented every day that they told me, and you'll be okay. And I did all the standard things. I can remember uh, maybe my spiritual awareness. Uh, I mean, I was such so full of bullshit but when I was in treatment. It's my second treatment, and I was in my first treatment three times consecutively. I mean, don't ask me. Just don't ask. We'll get to that story some other year. Um and where I was in terms of spirituality can be sort of summarized when I tell you that I was life was like being in an echo chamber. It was like there was no one there but me, okay? And I would reach out for help, and I couldn't possibly reach whoever there was to help me. One day in the recovery house, which was then the residential treatment center, one of the counselors asked me who was my higher power, and I said, God. 
And he said, well, do you believe in God? And I said, yes, I do, but I don't think he believes in me. I think I had been reading too many silly novels at that point, and I was trying to impress him, but I had no clue. I was born into a small Jewish family in a Jewish community of four in a town of 2,500, and my concept of God did never really match the people around me except my family, and trying to get through that was a whole other process. We were not terribly observant of the religious parts, but we really were very true in our beliefs over time, in the belief in God and in the belief in the law, and on a very emotional basis. Um, So... Time went on, and as I started to clear mentally, a process of years, not days, things began to change for me. One of the things that let me get in touch with my feelings the most was the first time I came to this group, IDAA in San Diego, and was had feelings of, of contentment and safety and pride that I'd never had before. Uh, and being a good alcoholic addict, if something makes you feel good, you go back, right? Well, they also had uh, some flyers for the Texas Medical Professional Group, which was a spring regional meeting, and the Florida Group, which was the fall Florida meeting. So I didn't trust myself on a vacation. So I went to the Texas Medical Professional Group meeting in San Antonio that year, 19, I think it was 1987, and went back to that for quite many years after that and would go to the Florida meeting in the fall and I would be going to local, I went to street AA and professionals AA and all that kind of stuff on a regular basis and as time went on I began to believe that my life wasn't just one enormous misadventure full of pain but that even when I was seeming to be heading in the wrong direction I was stumbling into better things than I stumbled into when I was using. I was about two years sober when I started being able to read things and make sense of them. And I encountered a book of sermons of my deceased rabbi, who was a very eloquent man. And at that point, I was really struggling with the concept of a higher power. And I read in one of these sermons uh, his definition of prayer, which is that prayer is our humble admission that we did not make ourselves. And suddenly, I had something I could grasp and hold on to, that I didn't need to know more than that. This time went on, I returned to some of the writings of Judaism and the writings of Martin Buber and little brief snatches where told me that it was okay to be insecure about a higher power, that if I knew God on a personal level, And if I knew God's thinking, then I would be God. And he calls this the holy insecurity, the acknowledgement that we really don't know our higher power completely and that we never can and that we should be content with that because that gives us many other options. I read a book by a guy named Juster called The Phantom Tollbooth, and there's a monster in it. It's for people 8 to 80, it says. I was emotionally maybe eight, and my body felt like 80, fit me. So in this, there's a monster, and the monster is levitating above the ground, and the hero, Milo, wants to get to another city, and he says, what's the right way to Digitopolis? And the monster says, well, 
if you take that road, you can go to Digitopolis. And Milo says, well, what about that road over there? And the monster says, well, if you drive long enough and hard enough and you take enough gasoline, you certainly can get to Digitopolis, even if it's a roundabout way. Number three road, he said, the same kind of thing. And suddenly he said to Milo, just because you've got choices doesn't have to mean any of them are right. So that was the beginning. Those were the beginnings. Over time, slowly, slowly, my belief in a higher power has grown. In many ways, it seems like no matter when I'm in trouble, one of you guys shows up. When I'm really struggling or when I'm scared or when I'm anxious for getting up on this podium, not knowing what I have to tell you today, trying to leave that to my higher power, one of you will come up like Dick did today and tell me that he's going to sit in the front seat and make faces at me and stick out his tongue. And all that anxiety drifts away. Or I'll cross that little bridge uh, going toward the hotel and run into Tom and who will ask me for a hug and set me back on my path, not even knowing that it's what I need as much as what he needs. My higher power keeps this all going, just like a bunch of plates and lots of sticks. When I try to do that, invariably I have a high cost of plate replacement, but somehow my higher power has lots more capability than I do. I have to admit to you that I'm frequently scared, that many mornings I wake up in the morning and have difficulty getting out of bed. There are days that I don't know if I want to go to work or not. Most of them I don't. And I remember something that uh, AA from Madison, Wisconsin said, and that was when we were talking about the third step, the way he works it, is that he gets up in the morning and he looks out the window and if there aren't any bars on it, he makes coffee. So that's what I do. <laughs> and I haven't missed work. And once I get there, I'm glad I went there. All of these things are messages from my higher power, just as Linda said this morning, that I have to get out of myself, that my skin is the prison I lived in for too long, and that when I'm feeling bad and feeling less than or frightened or inadequate, that I have to turn my attention outward, not inward, that if it's a beautiful day, I have to look at that beautiful day, not at my own flaws and faults. Those will be taken care of in time. So on a daily basis, I work on my struggle to stay clean and sober, centered, and in this world, not in my projections. When I park in my little labeled parking lot space for the hospital that I work at, even tells me I'm a doctor, that's helpful. I don't always feel like it. I say the serenity prayer, and I ask God to keep me clean and sober for this day and free of cigarettes. And it's worked so far by the grace of this program and the friendships and the meetings and the sayings and those stupid little don't think, don't drink, go to meetings, little sayings that we have that keep me clean and sober. So it's a matter of time. Now I have a life better than anything I've ever dreamed of. Uh, in a moment of folly five years ago, the psychiatric hospital that I'm at put me on the credentials committee, and then I have become the chairperson of the credentials committee, which is interesting since I'm the only one not board certified in anything on the whole hospital staff. Okay, who's had no training in psychiatry. 
Well, I, your friendly local recovering addictionologist, am doing quite well indeed. And happy to be alive, on balance, at least 70% of every day. And very grateful to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Sheila. Now, our next uh, speaker is Mark L., Oklahoma City, a uh, personal friend of mine. He keeps my keeps me ticking. <laughs> my name is Mark. I am an alcoholic. Uh, <clears throat> First, let me just take a deep breath here. I think this is the most rest I've had since this conference started, so it's been nice to get to attend the meeting and hear Sheila. Uh, I'll try to give you the cut down Cliff Notes version of my story and then a little bit about how it is today. I, uh, I think my drinking career was not unsimilar to, um, a lot of people's. I mean, I, I started drinking in high school and continued through college and in medical school at that time in my life, I could kind of control it to some point. Um, I drank alcoholically, but I didn't drink all the time, you know, I could postpone it to the weekends and maybe one night during the week and get what I needed to get done the rest of the time. And and uh, <clears throat> there was some recreational drug use in there along the way, and but I managed to hold things pretty get pretty well together. I got through college and got through medical school and did a residency in anesthesiology. Uh, I know now. One of the reasons I chose anesthesiology was because I knew if I wanted to be able to drink the way I like to drink, I sure didn't want to be on call. So that kind of narrowed me down to several choices. It was either going to be ER medicine, radiology, pathology, or anesthesiology, and I, I chose anesthesiology. But uh, I guess I was about five years into private practice, um, and my drinking had escalated to the point that I was starting to have some physical withdrawal symptoms. <clears throat> and uh, I kind of started noticing that uh, that alarmed some of my patients. Uh, you know, when you're getting ready to go into surgery, the last thing you want to see is the shaking hand of your anesthesiologist coming at you with a big honking IV. Uh, <clears throat> and... Uh, I started to drink in the mornings and, uh, you know, this to, you know, the way we think, uh, I had it all figured out. I thought if I drank Kahlua, which is coffee flavored liqueur with coffee, that nobody would smell this on me. And when that wasn't quite enough, I thought, well, I'll add creamer to it. So I got Bailey's Irish cream. So, you know, I'd have about three or four of these every morning, and my wife, you know, being the good Al-Anon she is, she wasn't Al-Anon then, she goes, uh, you know, she said, uh, she kind of mentioned, said, well, are, why are you drinking before you go in the morning? And I said, oh, you know, I said, it's just, I just do it because I like the way it makes my coffee taste. And uh, she accepted that, you know. I mean, she was as, probably in as much denial as I was, uh, but... One day I went in there, uh, I heard the nurses talking in the lounge at, at, in surgery, and, and they were saying that such and such surgeon had walked in there and left a cup of coffee, and it had obviously had liquor in it. Well, it was my cup of coffee, and so I got started getting worried. And 
I soon figured out that I could uh, take a shot of fentanyl, which is a narcotic we use in surgery a lot, and achieve the same results. Nobody could smell it on me. Uh, I seemed to be able to function very well. And, uh, you know, it actually allowed me to cut way down on the amount I was drinking. And it, by that, at that time in my drinking career, I was up to about half a gallon. I couldn't make a half a gallon of scotch last a week anymore. And uh, that seemed to be kind of my my wife's, you know, level of comfort, I noticed, that, you know, if I was having to get that second half a gallon of scotch before the weekend, that kind of upset her. So uh, I started using these IV narcotics, um, and it didn't take very long at all. In fact, in, just in a brief period of time, I was on those about two months, and, uh, you know, I went spiraling down rapidly. Uh I started overdosing in the bathrooms and, you know, I was basically uh, intervened on by my wife first and she got some friends and, and she set me up to go to a great treatment center. She sent me to Tucson, you know, Arizona. At that point, I'd, nobody at work had uh, really picked up on it. Most of my uh, mishaps had happened at home and uh, I didn't want to go. But I knew if I didn't, uh, that she was probably going to take further action, which would have meant uh, reporting me to the physician's board here. And I'd had a couple of friends that had gone that route, and I decided I didn't want to go that route. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, I go to this treatment center in Tucson, Arizona, which is a very nice place. Um, and, I, you know, I walked in there. They did the intake evaluation. And, you know, my wife and all my friends told me, said, you know, you got to be honest when you get out there. Or you won't get any help. So they started asking me what all I was using. I started listing down how much of these narcotics I was injecting and everything. About halfway through it, I was noticing the gal taking the history. Her mouth was just open. You know, and I thought, oh, maybe I was a little too honest. And uh, they uh, they kept me there about a couple of weeks, and I dried out. And I, you know, I was feeling pretty good. And so I went into the addictionologist there in Tucson, out in Tucson, Arizona, and I said, I'm ready to go home. And he kind of looked at me funny, and he said, no, I don't think you're ready to go home. He said, in fact, you know, I don't think our program is really geared to take care of your problems completely. Um, and uh, he had me call back to Oklahoma. He said, i got a good friend in Oklahoma City named Daryl Smith, who was the head of our physician's recovery, and I know a lot of you got to hear him talk. Um, and uh, so I said, fine. You know, I called Daryl up on the phone, and he's very nice. I, I said, well, Daryl had a little problem, and I, I checked into Tucson on my own. I've got this thing under control, and I'm ready to come home. And he said, oh, I think that's right. Get on the plane. Come on back. And... Uh, <clears throat> I should have known something was up. When I got home, I came home on the plane that night, and uh, another physician in the program, David B., met me at the airport, and he brought me home. And and when I got home, I noticed there was two big bags packed in the living room. And uh, they said, well, you know, that we're glad you went and got dried out over that two weeks, but we need you to go to an accredited program, you know, for an evaluation. To make sure you're fit for duty. Uh, 
So I said, fine. I knew they had me. I knew, you know, if I didn't do what they asked me to do, that they'd take my license. And uh, so I went off to treatment. And for the the classic four-day evaluation, it turned into three months. And uh, I couldn't get honest in that treatment center. Um, you know, I showed up there, and I remember I came in late at night, and, I, and they took me to the room, and everybody was already in bed, and my roommate, uh, you know, he kind of got up and talked to me for a minute, I said, well, how long you been here? And he said, well, I just celebrated a year of sobriety. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, <laughs> this guy's been here for a year? And, well, I remember I went to bed that night, and I said, I don't, you know, I'm going to tell him whatever it takes, you know. Whatever I think they want to hear, that's what I'm going to tell them. And that's what I did. I set about to make an A in treatment. And, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> obviously I didn't get any good out of that treatment program. I couldn't get past the first step. Uh, I felt like I'd become physically addicted to the narcotics, and and uh, I just couldn't admit that I was powerless. Uh, but... And I even, the, in this particular treatment program, you're out in the boondocks, way out. I mean, you couldn't have hiked out of there in five days. You know, I mean, it was a 20, it was a 25 mile drive to the closest filling station. And it was two hours into this, the first major city. So they had me for the first two months. But last month you go in to go ahead and stay in this, in the big town, and that was supposed to be your phase three. And, and I had been listening to what they'd said, you know, and of course, I told them exactly what I thought they wanted me to hear, and I was kind of the model, uh, you know, treatment patient, and, but when I got that phase three, I said, well, I'm just going to test this, you know, they, they told me if I take a drink of alcohol, I'm just going to go berserk, or this was what I was hearing anyway, that, you know, you're an alcoholic, if you take a drink of alcohol, you know, you're just going to not be able to stop and you're just going to wind up drunk and, and, uh, and I just didn't believe that. And so I, I tested that theory while I was in phase three. And, uh, what's so funny to me today is I think back, you know, if you, if you ever had the misfortune to be misdiagnosed as an alcoholic and sent to one of these places, the last thing in the world you would ever do is take a chance on getting caught drinking, because you know, <laughs> you know that's a that's a year sentence right there. <laughs> you know that's that's a good six months tacked onto where you know what you've already done at the time. But that was not what I thought. You know, I mean, so I would go out. I still can't believe I did this, but I would go out twice a week and buy uh, a half pint of vodka again because I thought they'd smell beer. And I was doing this experiment, you know. And uh, I drank that half pint of vodka and, you know, and, and then do a bunch of mouthwash and stuff and go back to the place where it's at. And, you know, I never accelerated my drinking. And I did that the, the last month I was there. And I, in, in my twisted mind, I thought, you know, I, I can't be an alcoholic. And uh, <clears throat> so the whole point of this thing was, was that, you know, I could not dream, I think, imagine a life or an existence without having some kind of relief available. Uh, you know, and they told me that, you know, uh, I could I could see where the drugs had been a problem and I was willing to give those up, but I wasn't willing to give up the alcohol. And uh, 
So I left out of that three months of treatment and uh, drank beer on the way home and uh, came back and worked for about a month. And they told me in that treatment center said, you know, if you go, if you start drinking again, sooner or later it'll lead you right back into the narcotics. And I didn't believe that. I had to test that theory for myself. And, and you know what? They were right. I lasted one month, and I was back to injecting the narcotics um, because I thought I could hide that better. Um, and uh, once again, I was intervened on at work, and uh, and I went back to the same treatment place. And uh, I guess the thing, I mean, I, I would like to be able to sit here and tell you that that was enough for me, but it wasn't. Uh, that first 90 days, I couldn't admit that I was an alcoholic. I couldn't admit that I was powerless. I thought my life had got unmanageable. I thought that I had become physically addicted. Second treatment, after coming back and relapsing, and you know, I could admit that I was powerless. Uh, I could admit that my life was unmanageable, but the problem I had was I didn't think I needed this program. I didn't think I needed a higher power. I came out of that second 90 days of treatment, and I go, okay, I, I know I'm an alcoholic. I know that if I take that first drink, I'm going to end up getting drunk. It's probably going to lead me right back into the narcotics, so fine. The party's over. I'm just not going to drink anymore. And I came back and tried to do that. I mean, I, I showed up just enough meetings uh, to try to, you know, look like I was doing the deal, but uh, I didn't have a sponsor. I wasn't working the steps, and... You know, I was trying to do do this thing on my own and uh, do that, what we call white-knuckle sobriety. And uh, I I lasted about seven months doing that. And uh, But I finally got to the point where I got so miserable uh, that I just didn't care. And by that point, I wasn't... I wasn't doing anesthesia then. I was at working in an emergency room, and I remember the night. Uh, it was a bad night in the emergency room, and and I just said, you know, if this is what sobriety is all about, I don't want any part of it, you know. And I knew that I was making, I made a conscious decision. I knew when I went to the operating room and stole the drugs and injected myself, I knew that I was getting ready to throw everything down the drain. Uh, I knew that I was throwing a career down the drain. I knew that my wife had had about all she could stand. But it just didn't matter. I did, you know, I mean, it just did not matter. And that's why I tell the guys that I sponsor, uh, you know, this program's about getting relief. Working the steps is about getting relief. And... Uh, if you can't, if you're not working the steps, if you're not going to meetings, if you're not working with a sponsor, if you're not taking action on your own behalf, you don't get the relief. And when you don't get the relief, trust me, you can only hold on for so long. And then sooner or later, you're going to do one or two things. You're either going to go back to using or you're going to commit suicide. Uh, and I was too chicken to do that. So I did the only thing I knew to do to get relief. You know, I went and got the drugs and I injected myself and, you know, they, they, they found me in the bathroom, uh, at the hospital, passed out. And, uh, at that point, Daryl, bless his heart, uh, he, he didn't know what to do with me. 
you know. They called him, and he goes, boy, Mark, he said, I don't know. And he he gave me an option. He said, I've, I've got another place that we've been sending some people that have maybe a dual diagnosis. Maybe you have some kind of problem that way. It's up in Chicago. I said, I'm sorry. I, you know, I've done two stints in long-term treatment. I'm not going back to treatment. And he said, well, he said, I don't know if there's much I can do to help you. And he said, why don't you, you know, go down there to the board and, and see if you can voluntarily submit your license. And so I went to the board meeting and, you know, I was going to voluntarily submit my license. And uh, I drank a half pint of vodka out in the parking lot because I needed a little courage to go in there. And uh, now if any of you are having trouble with your board, I wouldn't recommend that you do that. <laughs> I wanted just a little bit of courage. I got a little too much courage. As I walked in there and I said, you know, um, if you'll go to treatment and, and get some help, we'll, uh, we'll just put your license on a temporary suspension. You can come back and prove to us you're doing all right. Well, we'll get your license back to you and, you know, get you back in practice. And after that half pint of vodka, I told him, I said, there was no way in hell I was going back to treatment again. And if they wanted my license, they could just take it and stick it where the sun doesn't shine and walked out. Now, I'll skip ahead a little bit. A couple of years after that, they remembered those words. <laughs> So, don't burn any bridges if you're in that situation. <laughs> but, uh, I, uh, I had convinced myself that, you know, part of the problem and the reason I drank the way I did was because there was just too much stress in my life. And, you know, it was being a physician, it was the work, it was the family, it was this, you know, I mean, typical, alcoholic thinking where, you know, everything outside of us is the problem. You know, if you had my life, if you had under the pressure I'm under, if it, you know, too. And uh, my wife, uh, by this time, she was getting to be a pretty good black belt Al-Anon. She'd been going through all this time on a regular basis. And she told me, she said, I love you, Mark, but she said, I can't sit here and watch you kill yourself. You know, if you're going to drink and use, you're not going to do it in this house. So we had a little, oh, just a little fishing cabin down at a local lake about 120 miles from here. And so I said, fine, I'm going down there and I'm going fishing. And uh, I had a couple of old buddies, a couple of old retired truck drivers down there that were bad alcoholics. And those, those were my two buddies. And uh I stayed down there for about two months, I guess. Uh, we, uh, of course, our plan every day, you know, every night, uh, we'd go rushing to the bait shop and, you know, get, you know, all the worms and minnows and everything because we were going to get up at 5 o'clock the next morning and go fishing. <laughs> uh, and we'd sit there and drink and, you know, I, I, I kid, no kidding, I bet we... Uh, killed enough minutes to start our own bait shop, but out of two months, I don't think we ever wet a line. We'd get up the next morning, we'd all be so hungover, we'd say, well, we're just going to have a little eye-opener, just a little shot of whiskey in our coffee, and you know how that story goes. But somewhere down there, I had this moment of clarity. I was sitting there one morning, it was 
probably 10, 30 or 11 o'clock and here we're, we're already drunk and, uh, you know, I could see myself in those guys and I knew that I was going to die, uh, if I didn't get some help. And, uh, and I think that was the first time it really dawned on me, uh, that I was powerless, that, you know, because I sure didn't have anything to blame my drinking on anymore. You know, there was no pressure to the job. I had uh, actually had income coming in from a disability policy. I didn't have to work. I didn't have uh, wife or family's uh, pressures, you know. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I realized for the first time that the problem was me, that there was something wrong with me and that that I could not fix that, that I needed help to fix that. And uh, I uh, I came back to Oklahoma City, and um, I got involved with a with a home a men's home group. And uh, the other thing, I you know, I'd like to say that uh, you know I, I came back all on my own. But there there's a little, a little twist to this. I also had this thought in the back of my mind uh, that same day when I thought I'm going to die. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, having seen a few few people die from uh, alcoholism and esophageal varices and GI bleeding, uh, you know, I had this nagging thing in the back of my head going, you know, I don't want to be sitting in the ICU bleeding to death with esophageal varices and ascites going, I wonder if AA would have worked. You know, I wonder if I if, if I'd really tried it, would that have worked? Because I knew that would drive me crazy on my deathbed. So when I came back to this this home men's home group, you know, I, I had made a commitment. I said to myself that I was going to do everything that they asked me to do, not ask any questions, and just follow directions, and that I would do that religiously for three months. And then if I wasn't getting relief, then at least I could go back and drink myself to death and not have second thoughts about whether or not AA would have worked for me. And uh, <clears throat> what happened is I think what happens to any of us that come in here and really make a commitment to taking some action and working these steps, I started doing the five things that they suggested I do. I started praying in the morning, asking for God's help. I got a new big book. started reading that. I got a sponsor. I started working him with him on a daily basis. You know, I kept the plug in the jug, and I started going to a meeting, at least one meeting every day. And uh, what happened to me, uh, they kept me really busy. My sponsor knew that I had way too much time on my hands, and he knew that I was so self-centered and so self-absorbed that he needed to help me get out of myself. And so they had me going to three different treatment centers and working at the intergroup on top of all of that. I mean, so, and I had a schedule that I made out and gave to my sponsor. He wanted to know where I was what I was doing, what meetings I was going to. I can look back now, but, I mean, that's what it took for me. And the miracle for me was, you know, it wasn't even 90 days. Somewhere in that first first 60, about 60 days, 
I just, all one day it just dawned on me that it had been at least a week since I'd thought about taking a drink or doing a drug. And that was a miracle. That was an absolute miracle for me because I had, you know, I'd tried that seven months, six months of that white knuckle sobriety and there wasn't a day I didn't get up and there wasn't a hour that didn't go by during that time that I wasn't craving a drink or a drug. And to go for an entire week and not even think about it, I knew that was nothing that I was doing. And uh, that's when I came to believe in a higher power. That's when whom I choose to call God. That's when I came to believe that this program would work for me if I was willing to take the action on my own behalf and do the things that were suggested in here. And... uh since that time, you know, my life's completely turned around. Uh, I started working those steps like a madman with my sponsor. He tried, you know, he was trying to slow me down, but I, you know, I wanted to get, I wanted to get even more relief. And, uh, so we went through the fourth step, the fifth step, sixth, seventh, and I started making amends and, you know, I started, uh, trying to work with other people and getting sponsorees and, and, uh, <clears throat> It's true what they say in this program, you know, if if you'll make recovery your number one priority in your life, uh, everything else will work out. Because I can remember early on, before I had even a year, you know, I'd occasionally I'd talk to my sponsor, I'd say, well, you know, uh, what am I going to do about my license and all this other stuff? And he said, don't you worry about that. He said, all you have to do is stay sober and make recovery your number one priority. And that's what I did. And somewhere over about, I was a little over a year sober. Uh, Dr. Thiessen had taken over the physician's recovery program at that time, and he goes, he goes, I think it's about time for you to go back to work. And uh, he said, why don't you go up to Chicago and get a fitness for duty evaluation? And I thought, oh, my God, here we go, another four-day evaluation. <laughs> but, you know, I trusted the process. And uh, at that point, I was had become used to following directions. And so I said, okay, I'll go. And I went up there, and I only stayed four days. It was a miracle. And uh, I came back, and I gave him back my license. And um, I went back to, to a different residency, retrained in family medicine. And I've been in private practice ever since. I completed my five years of probation. Uh Recently, just took the boards and was board certified. So, you know, that was all a gift from God because I had nothing to do with that. Uh, and that's why I try to tell guys in the program, and it's hard. I understand that it's hard if there's any of you out there that are in this licensure issue, revocation, suspension problem. Uh, that seems to be, it's hard not to focus on that. Um, and, but I can tell you my experience is, is that if you will put that to the back burner and concentrate on your recovery, uh, and getting out of self and helping other people and doing the right thing, this fellowship will gather up around you. When I went to the board to get back my license, this board that was not really happy to see me after I told them they could take it and stick it where the sun doesn't shine. I had people that showed up that knew my board meeting was that they showed up from the inner group 
that I'd been working at and just showed up on her own and testified on my behalf about my recovery. You know, and I think that was one of the things that really swung the pendulum the other way for me. So, uh, you know, I've had many, many gifts in this program. Uh, I love this program. I love the people in here. Uh, it's saved my life, uh, and I can never repay the amount of gratitude that I have. Thank you. After my friend Mark C. died, I was, I, I don't trust other doctors, so I, I was looking for a, another doctor I could trust when Mark came back to the meeting and I figured out there's my man. <laughs> my friend Mark C., Mark, I'll use his name, he's passed on now, but he, most of you know him here, Mark Cox. When I first met him, I, I, I still, I hadn't had a doctor then anyway. It was back when Blue Cross only paid about half or whatever the bill was. So I made a deal with Mark if he'd take the Blue Cross and not bill me for the rest, we'd get along. <laughs> Mark said, fine, but his secretaries kept sending me this damn bill with all this balance. So anyway, our next speaker is uh, GMR here. I'm Jim. I'm a very, very grateful alcoholic. I'm grateful to God, grateful to AA, and especially grateful. You know, we can do what I can't. You know, I could spend this half hour looking at some of the people out in this audience and telling you how they've each helped me. I'm a little nervous up here. I come from a small town, and AA meetings are about 10, 15 people at a discussion group. And I'm nervous because of what I'm going to say. I've never talked about much. Hal Vors called me and asked me to speak, and I said, you want me to give my life story? He said, no, I want you to tell how you found God. And I've really never talked about that at AA meetings, except once on a cruise ship, because I tried to avoid religion, and I can't leave that out. And I, one of the things would I would not want to talk to the doctor about it. I've avoided that in my meetings. So I'm also nervous for a very, very different reason. When I was one year sober, I got up and talked. And for those of you who know me, you can understand this. For my first three years in this program, I was miserable. And I went to meetings and all I did was whine. And I got up on my first birthday and I whined and I whined and I whined. And I knew I was whining, but I couldn't do anything else. And then Bobby got up. Bobby was the most beautiful girl I've ever seen in AA. She was the wife of the mayor, had two little girls. She was about 30 and she gave one of the most spiritual talks I've ever heard to this day. Six months later, she died in DTs in the emergency room. And that taught me a valuable lesson. You know, our book says we have a daily reprieve based on our spiritual condition. And I realized right then, I've got to work on my spiritual condition every day. The other thing I really, really why I never wanted to speak at an AA, at an IDAA meeting, I had a friend, Patrick, an obstetrician, who in 1991 when we were at Vancouver, I had five years of sobriety. And Patrick had two years. And Patrick was asked to speak up here. And inside I went to that meeting in a rage. And envious. How dare they ask Patrick to speak? He's only got two years and I got five years. 
A couple of years later, Patrick died of complications of heroin. And you know, that, that I think those two events took envy on my life and made me very happy to sit back and listen. Hal asked me to speak on how I found God. I grew up in a Catholic family where both mother and father were very devout. I had a mother who was a very powerful influence in my life. I really didn't start getting in trouble with alcohol when I look back to about 1974. I was 43 years old. Because mother almost every day of my life said, Jim, don't trick. You're the spitting image of my six uncles, and they all died of alcoholism. Two of them as winos in the street. Two men who had been very important men in Chicago. And that made me fear alcohol. And mother, I think it was mother and the good nuns who put a fear of sex into my life. And I never realized I had a strict family until I got to be a junior in high school. Uh, my father moved from Los Angeles to Salt Lake. He got a big promotion. He said, Jim, you've been in eight grammar schools. I think you should be in one high school. I'm going to leave you here as a boarder. And I moved into the Jesuit boarding hall at Loyola High School in Los Angeles. And all the boys thought the Jesuits were terrible. They were so strict. And I had never had so much freedom in my life. You know, I was to end the Jesuits and stay there for 13 years. Perhaps this story will tell you my fear of sex. From the time I was six years old, I was going to be a doctor. My grandmother, who died at 93, had terrible problems with her feet. And at six years of age, I started washing her feet and shaving off the corns, and she could walk much better. And I thought, God, to make someone feel good, that's wonderful. That's what I want to do with my life. And then I met Pat, and I felt madly in love with Pat M.G., and I remember after the senior prom, we went to Pat's house. We were sitting on the couch, and I kissed Pat the first time. And then, fully clothed, I put my hand on her breast. God, the fear just overwhelmed me. I was going to go to hell, and I ran out of that door. And the next day, I went to the Jesuits, and I said, I want to join the Jesuits. I was a good student, a good boy, and they took me. And I entered the Jesuits, and I stayed there for 13 years. And I was basically very happy in the Jesuits. I loved the way of life. I loved to study. And, uh, the, uh, but from the time I entered, I really didn't want to be ordained. And I'd keep going to the fathers and they'd say, Jim, you're a good man. You're a wonderful speaker. You're going to be a great priest. But inside I knew I didn't want to be a priest. And after I was in theology, um, the Jesuits had my life all planned for me. I was going to Rome, and I was going to come back and teach theology on the East Coast. They sent me to Baltimore, where I was under Guthwaigo. If any of you read Time, he was on the cover of Time magazine, and J. Courtney Murray, he made the cover of Time magazine twice. And uh, I was all, my life was planned out for me. I was going to become a theology teacher. But... I just couldn't go on and be ordained. I don't know why. So I left two months before my class was ordained when I had asked Rome if I could stay on as a teacher, and they said no. If you're going to stay on, you got to become a brother, and that means doing laundry and doing the yard work and setting the tables. And I knew I would have gone insane. The reason I mention this is my religious background 
and my 13 years in the Jesuits and my becoming a theologian to teach other theologians had nothing to do with my finding God. There was one thing that was important that the Jesuits did give me. Well, I, I had the pleasure of spending eight months in recovery, six months under Doug. And while I was down there, Doug, I made a wonderful friend of Jim Weigel. And two of the men I admired both relapsed. And I went to uh, Jim Weigel and I said, how can these men relapse? How can I stay sober? And he said, Jim, thank the Jesuits for that. You know, the Jesuits have rules of strict obedience. And he said, Jim, you do exactly what you told. And that's what the Jesuits gave you. Well, anyway, getting back to how I found God, it wasn't through this religious background. It wasn't through the Jesuits. Where I found God was due to a woman who I never should have found God from. I never dated a girl unless she was very thin. I love thin girls. And I was two weeks in the St. Luke's Treatment Center in Phoenix, and this woman got up on the stage who looked like a middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears. And I never paid attention to women like that in those days. And the second thing she said, the first words out of her mouth were, I revel in my anti-Catholicism. And ordinarily, I just would have turned it off then. And I didn't. And what she's talked about was this. She said she was raised in the Virginia, North Carolina area. And I forget the name of the river she mentioned. But this river came in at an angle to the ocean and created a peninsula. And it was the most beautiful place in the world, but storms used to stir it up. So finally, some wealthy people got the Corps of Engineers to put in an undestructible platform. And then they brought in and built some undestructible condominiums. And the next year, one of these huge hurricanes, I forget the name of it, but 135 mile an hour winds came along the coast and destroyed those condominiums and destroyed that undestructible platform the Corps of Engineers had built. And she said, that was the God she started with. And she said, I want you, talking to not me, but the people in the audience, to look back over your lives and see the things you cannot explain without a higher power. And you pray to them. And I went back to my room that night, and I started thinking of things I had never thought of. When I was 11 years old, I fell three stories onto a cement sidewalk, and I broke my back. And I was in the hospital 10 months. And after six months, after six months, the doctors came to my dad and mother and said, he will never walk again. He will be paralyzed. We've waited six months for spinal shock to wear off, and there's no reaction below the waist. If he doesn't get back in six months, he never will. My father took every penny he had in savings, and he gave it to the Carmelite nuns, and asked them to make a novena that I would walk again. And I didn't even know this. Uh, nine days later, the doctors came in, and I said to them, I can move my legs. And they wouldn't believe it. And they put me out through all these tests. And they said, there's no sign of paralysis. But they were so scared this was temporary that they uh, 
kept me in the hospital another four months. They put me in a full body cast, which I wore for the next five years, being changed every six months and itching to death in the meantime. I had forgotten all about that. And that night I got on my knees and prayed to the comrades. And a second event, I remember this, and I never realized its importance until I became a doctor. I had an uncle, Uncle Doc, who saw patients every night till 10 o'clock at night. He used to walk home for lunch and walk home for dinner. And Uncle Doc worked in his office till two weeks before he died at 77. And Uncle Doc was alabaster white. And Uncle Doc, um, the, uh, Uncle Doc had this, uh, how do you say it? He got jaundice. They didn't know what it was. They were going to move him up to the university. And, um, the, uh, night before he was, uh, to be moved to the university, he was baptized. He'd never been a Catholic. And it was interesting. Uh, his office girl became a Carmelite nun. And she told my aunt that when I take my vows, I will offer it up. The doc will be ordained, will be baptized. And the day she took her vows, doc asked the priest to baptize him. And he was jaundiced. He was being shipped to the university. And the next day, they walk into his room, and he's alabaster white. And he never went up to the university. And I think you know as doctors, jaundice doesn't disappear overnight. But it did in his case. And the third way I found God was through something that happened when I was a new doctor in El Centro. The wife of the, not the wife, the mother of the administrator had been admitted to the hospital. And for five days the internists tried to figure out why she was having high fevers and abdominal pain. They brought in the surgeons and that wasn't it and they ran all the medical tests. And finally on the fifth day, they ordered an IVP. She had a huge black kidney with a stone over a centimeter in size. And in those days, if it was over a centimeter in size, we opened them up. We cut them open. We didn't basket stones that size. This was over the great vessels and it was too much danger. And so they got the IVP and they called me. And I'm just working her up and she goes into shock with a blood pressure of 70. And we started dopamine drip. And I talked to her son. I said, we don't operate. She's got an abscess behind that stone. She's going to die. And if we do, there's a 50% chance she's going to die. And um, so anyway, he said, well, let's operate. I had never been so frightened in my life. And I went down to the doctor's lounge, and there was no one there. And I got on my knees, and I prayed for half an hour while they were getting the patient ready. And I came out. And I was scared to put a knife to her. And I did what I should not have done. If there are any urologists who practiced back in the 60s and 70s, they don't know. Every textbook said, don't put up a basket cut. But I put up a basket. And I'm there looking through the cystoscope. And I start praying, I don't touch that basket. And with this huge stone in it, which usually couldn't even move a stone that big, that basket started moving and that stone came out. And I went out of that operating room and I was the big hero. Look what I had done and I hadn't done a damn thing. And that night, after I had heard this woman speak, I went up to my room. I got on my knees. And there's something that happened in 1974 
I said thank you in 1986. And for the next few years, when I prayed, I got down on my knees and I prayed to the God of the Carmelites who had made me walk and made Uncle Doc better. And I prayed to the God of the administrator's mother who had moved that stone because I had. And you know, I've never talked about this much, but this is how I found God. You know, and the other thing I did, you know, I have found the concept of God hard. I know he's there, but I really don't know he's there. So, you know, almost the first prayer I say over and over in the morning is, God, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. There's there's a lot of belief there, and the belief it includes. And, you know, over the years, I've started looking for miracles. One of the miracles in my life I had forgotten about at the time, but do later, I love to fish. And when I'm catching fish, nothing is going to move me. And the summer of 1962, before I started pre-med, I was up in Logan Canyon in Utah. And I was fishing. And I was pushing, pulling fish out of that lake one after another. God, you know, I was going to be there till evening. No way you were going to get me away. And all of a sudden, something told me to leave. And I was with Newell Washburn. We took a two-month tour of the West in a TR4. We had all of our camping gear under the footrest for the passenger. I had a drive with the passenger's feet up on the um, top of the car. And anyway, all of a sudden, something made me leave Logan Canyon. And Newell said, I'm not leaving this fishing so good. So I went and got my fish, my uh, sleeping bag, wound it up. Uh, started walking out of the canyon, and I'd walked for maybe an hour and a half, two hours, when I hear a honking before me. And there's Newell, angry as could be. Called me an idiot, a lot of four-letter words, and I got in the car, and he wouldn't talk to me. We went up to northern Utah and camped on the shores of Bear Lake that night. Next morning, he wouldn't talk to me. He was so angry that I pulled him out of there. And we stopped at a roadside place about 9 o'clock, I remember, to... Uh, home, get some breakfast, and Newell went over and got a newspaper, and he came in and put it in front of me and said, I guess you were right, because exactly where we had been, there was an earthquake about six o'clock that evening, and 20 people were killed, you know, that just didn't happen that I got that urge to get out of there, that was God, I've got to tell you one other thing, and these are the things that make me believe in God. I had a wonderful mother-in-law. All the mother-in-law jokes don't apply in my case. And um, she takes her three children and their spouses on a cruise every summer. And uh, the first four years I was sober, I didn't go because I was too scared of the alcohol on board the ship. Uh, in 15 years, I've already missed one IDAA meeting, and that was because of my sponsor, John. And... Uh, uh, the same time, he said, it's time for you to go with the family, to be on that ship. And I said, but I can't. You know, you've always told me I have to go to IDAA, and it's a Boca Rattan at the same date. He said, you miss it this year. So anyway, after that, I've gone, but I got from the family a promise never to have the family vacation during the first week of August. Well, anyway, in 1995, we're going to China. I have never used a Walkman in my life. I have never had any desire to use a Walkman in my life. And I get a compulsion two days before we leave to pack a Walkman. I don't know where it came from. 
So anyway, I tried my daughters, and I, I, I tried both of their Walkmans. I didn't like them. So I forgot about it. And the next day, the day before we leave, I had one of those impulses like you got when you're a young kid. i got to do this. So I went down to Radio Shack and bought a real expensive Walkman that I liked. And I came back and I packed it and I said, where did I get this thing? Well, a year before IDAA, I had bought some Joe and Charlie tapes and I had never listened to them. So I threw them in the back. And this is the only cruise I've been on. And I go on a lot of cruises where there were no AA meetings. And I went down every day and read my big book and I read those tapes. And believe it or not, as I listened to those tapes, I cried because I was sure that God had given me that impulse to work my work, take that Walkman with me. Um, and I think if we look at things, God is there if we give him a chance. You know, I learned about God not from my religion, not from being a theologian, not from two of America's great theologians on Time Magazine. I learned it because of that woman who told me to look for things in your life which you can't explain. Uh, I had a problem here. I was at the IDAA involving a member of my family, not my wife, my daughter. And you know, that things I think worked out beautifully. God has sent people into her life who may be able to do what I never could. I've given up. I realize now you can't help a family member. Uh, the I can't tell you how wonderful my life has become through uh, IDAA. Um, people have taught me here things every year. And I've learned a lot from my group. I think one of the things I rely on very much is when I got sober, I had two what I consider very bad faults. One was rage and anger. You know, I've gone better in rage and anger through God's help, asking him to help me. You know, one of the men who I respect very much, a Dr. Leo in my home group, says over and over, the man I was drank, and the man I was will drink again. And the only way to avoid drinking is to change. And the place I realized I had to change the most was in anger and rage. And therefore, every time I get angry, I get scared. And it drives me back to the big book, and it drives me to extra meetings, and it drives me to extra prayer. And you know, one of the greatest gifts that AA has given me is it has taken away most of my fear. Uh, when I got sober, I realized I hadn't kept up on my postgraduate education. And being in a little town... Um, where I have to go two hours just to get on airplane. Um, the uh, I, it was a I had to fly to get postgraduate education, and for the first few years I was sober, I got about 100, 150 CME credits a year, and I needed them. But oh, I was scared when I got on that plane. My wife, who loves to travel, and I was a world traveler before we got married. Uh, she wouldn't even fly with me my first three years sober. I was so hysterical. I'd get on the plane and I'd hear a noise and I'd say to the hostess, you better tell the pilot, maybe we're going to have a crash or something. Every little groan and squeak, you can't imagine my fear. And God took that away. I got on a uh, plane in Chicago when I was about three years sober. And I looked around, I was going to L.A., I was scared as usual. 
And all of a sudden I say, you know, God, this is your plane. These 300 people, they're all your children. If you want us to die, that's okay. And I got on that plane, and I knew I was in God's hands. And I've never been scared of flying since. We have flown all over the world many times, and I have no fear. Because I'm in God's hands. I really think at three years sober is when I made my first really good third step. You know, a lot of things led to that fear disappearing. Uh, I drove over to San Diego for several years to see John every Wednesday. And in the beginning, I was really scared to leave the valley. I had this pathological fear of having a cardiac arrest. And when you leave my valley, there are 90 miles of mountains. There are no hospitals or places to stop along the way. And I was scared of that drive until I went to a meeting and I heard one of the guys say, my sponsor says, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. So I get behind that wheel, scared to death, and would say, God, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And I'd repeat that for 90 miles. But, you know, it took effect, you know. And then a wonderful man with 40 years of 41 years of sobriety retired to our valley. And he said something I never want to forget. I try to think about on a daily basis. He says, anxiety or fear is a measure of my distance from God. And he said, we have to shorten that distance. And the only way we shorten that distance is on our knees. And you know, every time I get fearful or scared, I try to think of that. Um... This has been a wonderful journey. I can't tell you how wonderful it's been. I look out on some smiling faces. People have helped me so much. And you know, my I am grateful. Grateful for all the people who helped me. I could not have done this alone. I was a basket case when I heard this program. To tell you how far I've gone down mentally, and I was very happy when I heard that CMA talking here. I did not have atrophy of the brain. I had shrinkage of the brain, for any of you who heard the CME talk. But the thing that, I, I, I really had three bottoms. One when I went into treatment. The second time with my wife. I knew on my first date that my wife might ask, would marry me if I asked her. Of course, I took about three years to ask her. But uh, we got into treatment and we couldn't talk one day. First time I had met her, I had been given her a phone number, and we talked for two hours on the phone. And we sat there in dead silence. And finally I said to her, are you going to leave me? And I knew what she was going to say. She was going to say, no, I love you. But that's not what she said. She said, no, I'm not going to leave you. But she she repeated her marriage vows with a real emphasis on better or for worse. And that, that was the bottom I hit in treatment. The other bottom was they had a man by the name of Butcher who did a uh, examination on us, psychological exams down at Talbot's. And uh, God gave me a gift with math. When I was a senior at a private boys' uh, high school, the senior math teacher got sick and was out for several weeks. And they asked me to teach the class. This was the honors class and thing, and I was able to do it. And you know, when I go in a bank today, I can do figures faster in my head than the uh, manager can do them on his computer. But John Butcher asked me to repeat four numbers when I was in treatment. 
And I could not repeat the four numbers he gave me. And he tried it several times. And that's made me realize how much my brain had been hurt by this disease. And as it's come back, and I'm 70 years of age, I'm practicing full time. I love it. I love it the way I loved it when I took care of my grandmother's feet when I was six years old. And God willing, I'll work another 10 or 15 years. Not because I have to, but I love it. And you see, I was ready to quit urology about a year before I got, I was intervened on. In fact, I actually retired four months before I went into treatment. I was disgusted with urology. Everything in my life, this program's been given back to me. Three doctors had said I didn't have a year to live before I went into treatment. I was thrown out of a little town by an air ambulance. I was paralyzed. And yet, I'm not today. And I, I can stand up here and tell you, I don't know how to express the gratitude I have. Gratitude to God, to AA, and to IDAA, and all you people who have helped me. Thank you very much.